in expounding Hebrews chapter 5 to you tonight, which gives us uh, quite a lot of information about uh, Melchizedek, uh, shall we first consider a few verses from Hebrews chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Notice the way in which Hebrews chapter 1 commences. It says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, just very shortly, this states exactly who the Lord Jesus Christ is, that great prophet, priest, and king, according to the order of Melchizedek. It says that uh, this Son of God is the one whom the Father, or whom the triune God, has appointed heir of all things. We need to understand that Jesus inherits the universe. To be sure, he created the universe as God, but as man, as a result of his becoming one of us, his incarnation, and his living the perfect life, and dying the death in our place, uh, has now been appointed to inherit everything as man, bearing in mind that he's the same person as the one by whom the triune God also made the worlds. We're further told in verse 3 that Jesus is the brightness of the glory of the triune God, the express image of God's person. Jesus is the one who, as God, keeps on upholding all things by the word of his power. But then we're told something about Christ's work as man, namely, when he had by himself purged our sins, namely as our great priest, he sat down on the right hand or the throne of the majesty on high, namely as our great prophet. So already, in these first verses of Hebrew, Hebrews, we are told something about the priestly work of the Lord Jesus and also something about his kingly work, which commenced respectively at Calvary and on his, after his ascension into heaven. You will notice also at verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, When God brings the first begotten into the world, that is to say, apparently, at the time that the second person of the Trinity was incarnated on Christmas Day and came into the world as the first begotten Son, God says, Now let all of the angels of God worship Him. There is, of course, another sense in which our Savior comes into the world, and that is after His death, at the time of His resurrection. And indeed, I would argue this verse, Hebrews 1 verse 6, applies both to what happened at Christ's human birthday as well as what happened on the day on which he rose from the dead. Let all the angels of God worship him. The one who is worshipped is obviously God, for God alone is to be worshipped. And then in verse 8, the holy writer says, To the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and have hated iniquity. 
And therefore God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Notice in verse 8, it says that God has said to his Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Here God the Father calls God the Son, God. You see from this verse that the Son is also God. However, it also refers to the throne of the Son of God. Your throne, O God, says the Father, is forever and ever. The question is, is God the Father here talking about the divine throne which the Son of God together with the Father and the Spirit had always sat upon ruling over the universe ever since its creation? Or is this verse referring rather, and certainly also, to the throne of God in heaven upon which the man Christ Jesus sat down for the first time as man after his ascension into heaven? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Either way, this throne on which the Son of God sits down as the great king according to the order of Melchizedek is a throne which lasts forever and ever now that Jesus as man has started to rule over the universe especially after his ascension that human rule of Jesus over the universe will never cease it will continue forever and forever and forever And then God adds, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. As man, our Savior has a scepter, a royal stick, which he wields over the entire universe from heaven. And that royal stick or scepter, a symbol of rule, we are told here is the scepter of his kingdom and it is a scepter of righteousness. Never does our great Jesus Christ, the high priest and the high king forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, ever rule unrighteously. The very idea is impossible. And then in verse 13, the holy writer asks, To which of the angels did God at any time say, quote, You sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is something that God said only to that perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest and here the high king forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Sit down at my right hand and keep sitting there on the throne of the universe until I, the triune God, make your enemies your footstool. The meaning is, until I have finished making your enemies into your footstool. This process of making uh, Christ's enemies uh, into his footstool started right after the ascension. It has never ceased. It is a progressive action which continues until God has finished making Christ's enemies his footstool. And what happens then? Well, it certainly isn't that uh, Christ's footstool is removed from him uh, and he ceases ruling over his enemies, but it means that at the end of history he will have finished subjugating all of his enemies under his footstool. Uh, they will be removed in this sense, sense that they will then be thrust into hell, hell, fire, and damnation forever. But do remember that not Satan, but Jesus Christ is the king of hell, as well as the king of heaven and the king of earth, so that his rule over the ungodly, that part of his enemies whom he subjugates, but who do not acknowledge his kingdom, continues forever and forever and forever, even in hell. Remember the psalm of David, Where shall I go from your spirit? If I go to hell, you are there too. One of the agonies of those in hell forever 
is their inability, even in hell, ever to escape from the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules also over hell. And then in the second chapter, beginning at verse 9, we read, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. We see him crowned with glory and honor, so that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it behooved him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that keeps on sanctifying, and they who are sanctified, are all from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then in verse 15, and to deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We see Jesus, we are told in verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. The, re the reference is to the man, Christ Jesus. Of course, as God... The one who became Jesus was never made. He is the co-creator of all things and the maker of all things, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But we're not talking about the one who always has been the Son of God and God the Son. We are rather talking, in verse 9, about the one who became the man, Christ Jesus, and what happened when he became man. We see Jesus, the man, who as man was made a little lower than the angels. The statement is perfectly true. Our Savior in his divine nature was always very God of very God, but in his human nature, which he never had until his mother uh, conceived him, in his human nature he was made or manufactured a little lower than the angels. Uh, because, you see, although our Savior in his human nature was sinless, uh, unlike the unfallen angels, uh, our Savior did have a human nature with all of the weaknesses which the human nature received uh, once Adam had fallen into sin, even though it was impossible that Jesus could ever sin, it was certain that Jesus would die. And he did die. Now, Adam would never have died before the fall if he had never disobeyed God. But Jesus could die and did die. Jesus could suffer and did suffer, whereas Adam could not until he fell. And so in that sense, in the sense of being able to suffer, in the sense of being able to die, our Savior in his human nature was indeed made or manufactured a little lower than the angels which did not fall and which after they withstood that test could not fall and could not possibly die. And then the reason is given as to why Jesus was made as man a little lower than the angels Middle of verse 9, for the suffering of death. He was made a little lower than the good angels so that he could suffer and so that he could undergo death. If he had not been made a little lower than the unfallen angels, it would have been impossible for Jesus, even in his human nature, to have suffered and to have died, just as it was impossible for Adam, in his one and only human nature, ever to have suffered and ever to have died unless and until he sinned. Well, we see this Jesus who suffered death in our place, but now we see him, after his death, crowned with glory and honor. This is not talking about the glory which he always had before the world was with the Father, 
This is talking about the human glory which Jesus gained as a result of his incarnation, as a result of his perfect compliance to the covenant of works. Now that he has successfully withstood that test, we see him crowned with glory and crowned with honor, in that he, by the grace of God, has tasted death for every man. Even Jesus needed the grace of God. It was not saving grace, it was common grace, if you like, but it was grace nevertheless. God was under no obligation to sustain the man Christ Jesus by his grace, yet God did. And it was sustained by the grace of God that our Lord Jesus was able to taste death for every man. For it behooved God, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in order to bring many sons, that's you and I, unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation, the Lord Jesus, perfect through sufferings. Christ was always sinless, but his human nature had not been perfected until he died on the cross. And it was necessary that he should suffer in his human nature for those for whom he died, namely, uh, every man, the whole world, the human race as a whole, though not every person individually, so that through his sufferings he could bring all of us many sons unto glory. And that's why it says in verse 15 that God also has the intention through these sufferings of Christ in order to bring us to glory to deliver us who through fear of death were all of our lives subject to bondage. But now that we're in Jesus Christ, we are no longer subject to bondage because Christ has triumphed. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He has sat down at the right hand of God as our great prophet, priest, and king according to the order of Melchizedek so that we should die no more, so that we should fail no more, so that we should now rule under him and one day rule with him so that we should learn to speak his word prophetically after him and so that we as priests under God, under our great high priest, should learn as priests how to intercede for our loved ones and for our neighbors, even as our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, uh, after the order of Melchizedek, keeps on interceding for us forever, every second of every day of every week here on earth, so as to be able to present us at the end of world history, indeed at the end of our lives, to the Father with exceeding joy. And therefore, chapter 3, verse 1, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, keep on giving consideration to the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest, that great prophet, priest, and king, according to the order of Melchizedek. For Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, namely to God the Father, as also Moses was faithful in all of his household. The whole of the Hebrew people being under the leadership of Moses, similarly, Christ is faithful to God who appointed him in respect of Christ's household, which is the entirety of the whole elect human race, nay more, which is every atom of this universe, which he co-created with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit as his house in which he dwells forever. Look at verse 3. For this man, this man Jesus, was regarded as being worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house, he who is the second person of the Trinity who built the house, namely the house of the whole universe, has more honor than the house, the universe which he built. 
And so from this we learn that our great Melchizedek, or rather greater Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, rules as king over the whole of his house, the entire universe, and certainly over the whole of his earthly household, namely all for whom he died, who come to acknowledge him, uh, those many sons whom he brings to glory. Verse 5 says, Now Moses truly was faithful in all of his household, but as a slave, as a testimony about those things which were to be spoken about afterward, namely Christ when he would come. But Christ is faithful, not as a slave, but as a son over his own house, whose house or household we are, provided we keep on holding fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firmly unto the end. Modern evangelicalism says if you honk twice and allege that you love Jesus, you'll be certain to go to heaven. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says we are Christ's household provided we keep on holding fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firmly to the end. To be sure, we only keep on holding fast with confidence by the grace of God that he gives us. But it is we that are to keep on holding fast to the end with confidence. And if a person says he's a Christian, but if he doesn't keep on holding fast to the end with confidence what he professes, we need to raise a big question mark behind that person's life as to whether he is a Christian, whether he is a member of an evangelifish denomination, or even if he is a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America or the Presbyterian Church of Australia. If we keep on holding fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firmly to the end, God's people are to be a firm people, they are to be a confident people, they are to be a hopeful people, they are to be a people that rejoice, ye righteous in the Lord rejoice. Remember the words of your rendition of Psalm 33, ye righteous in the Lord rejoice. Those who are long-chinned, miserable Christians, hope the Lord comes back, we're so miserable, we're getting tired of the struggle, need to question whether they are Christians at all. Christian people are people who are hopeful and who are full of joy. So when you sing the Psalms, please, for goodness sake, sing full of joy. That's the way we need to be. I could also have said, maybe I will now, though I hadn't planned to, uh, but going back to, uh, to chapter 2, uh, look at verse 12, um, where Jesus says to his father, I am going to declare your name to my brethren. In the middle of the church, I will sing praise to you. Listen, folks, when you sing the Psalms, it's really Jesus through his Spirit who is using your tongue and my tongue to sing praises to the Lord. And our Lord never sings miserably. So if you're singing miserably, the spirit that is in you as you miserably sing the Psalms is not the Holy Spirit, and you need to get with it and make sure that the Psalms are sung joyfully. I met a young man last week um, who emailed me today, and I referred to Pastor Joseph, and he may be descending on you in your midst soon. He says, can you recommend a good church? And I said, well, what about uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church of Southfield? The church, he says, must be theonomic. It must be post-millennial uh, and preferably psalm singing. He doesn't quite know yet whether with instruments or without. But he told me privately, above everything else, they've got to sing the psalms joyfully. Because what holds back... The expansion of the church of Jesus Christ on earth, he says, and I think he's right, is that God's people, whether they're singing the Psalms or whatever they're singing, are singing miserably. So please, when he arrives, 
try and sing as joyfully as you possibly can. <laughs> and even if he doesn't arrive, and even if he arrives and leaves, be ye righteous in the Lord rejoice. Remember it is Jesus singing through his Spirit that inhabits your heart. He is singing songs of praise joyously to his Father. We're his body. He uses our tongues in order joyously to please the Father. And by the way, he does that as the great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. For a priest does many things, apart from bringing blood sacrifices to God, the priest also prays to God. And um, when we um, sing the psalms of praise to God, we hopefully do so prayerfully, and we also do so energetically, and we do so vitally, and we do so joyfully, as God would have those psalms sung through the Spirit of Christ who should be stirring us up to sing the way in which God wants to hear it sung. Okay, uh, let's now go on to chapter 4. I could say a great deal about chapter 4, but let me just start with verse uh, 14. As you know, chapter 4 explains how Jesus is the only one who on our behalf has struggled to enter into the saints' everlasting rest. He's done that. And now we who are Christians are therefore enjoined ourselves uh, to keep on entering into that weekly Sabbath-keeping. Because Christ has, through his earthly Sabbath-keeping, finally entered into the saints' everlasting rest in heaven, which weekly Sabbath-keeping here on earth points forward to. We have come to rest in Christ if we are really Christians, but we haven't ceased to keep the weekly Sabbath just because we are Christians. We are to continue regularly to keep the weekly Sabbath, uh, as we are told uh, in uh, Hebrews 4 uh, and verse 9, there still remains, therefore, a regular keeping of the Sabbath. The word rest in the King James is not a very good translation. The Greek that the word rest translates there is sabbatismos, which means a regular recurring Sabbath, week after week after week, that remains to us as the people of God. So that week by week we take steps closer to glory, uh, closer to our everlasting rest uh, in heaven after our death where Jesus already is and where he is waiting for us. Verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us keep on holding fast to our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but we have a high priest who was in all points tempted, like we are yet, he was without sin. Therefore, let us keep on coming boldly to the throne of grace so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, look at verse 14. We have a great high priest, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, the righteous king, we have a great high priest who has already passed from the earth into the heavens, who has already ascended into heaven on our behalf. And the name of that great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. And therefore, let us firmly keep on holding fast to that profession. Let us always profess that our Jesus is our great prophet, priest, and king, according to the order of Melchizedek. And what a priest he is. He is not a dispassionate priest. Uh, he is not a priest like the Levite, 
uh, in the parable of the man that fell amongst the thieves who uh, is on his way to church and can't be bothered to bind up the wounds of the man that fell amongst the robbers. No, we have a high priest who has compassion on us, uh, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Friends, listen. You are infirm, and I am infirm. You are full of weaknesses, and so am I. But the great thing about our high priest, Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, is he is very touched when he sees us as his children struggling with all of our weaknesses. And he identifies with our weaknesses. And he mends us. And he soothes us. And he patches us up as his children. Because he's a priest, you see. And he sees to it that patched up, uh, we do keep on keeping on until finally we arrive in heaven without any band-aids at all. He is that kind of priest. He was in all points tempted and tested, just as we are, yet in his case, he was without sin. Therefore, folks, let us keep on coming boldly to the throne of grace. Let us keep on coming boldly to the throne of grace. How bold are you and I in our prayers we need to be bold for God. We need to mean business with God. We need to pray and to pray successfully, boldly. We need to bring our prayers to God for Christ's sake, knowing that when we plead that our prayer be received for the sake of Jesus Christ, our great high priest who suffered so much for us, there is no possibility of God not hearing our prayer when we pray aright. Pray boldly to the throne of grace, not to the throne of your earnings, but to the throne of grace, for our earnings always fall short. And we come to a gracious God who loves to hear us plead our own infirmities, but nevertheless that he should hear us, and expecting uh, that uh, he will hear us for we plead and pray for Christ's sake that, so that we find grace to help us in time of need. I don't know what your need is and I don't know what your time of need is but God does. And if we learn to plead boldly in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, we become bold and stronger Christians through it all. Now, folks, that's not the sermon. That's the introduction to the sermon. Here follows the sermon from chapter 5, but first let me read the passage, chapter 5, and then, having read God's Word, I shall remove my jacket because it's getting hot up here and attempt to expound chapter 5. Don't put the fan on, please. Not on me. For every high priest, taken from among men, is ordained for men in things that pertain to God, so that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion upon the ignorant and upon those who have gone astray, who have gone out of the way? In that he himself too is surrounded with infirmity. And for this reason, he ought, the priest ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Now nobody takes this honor upon himself except he who has been called by God, as was Aaron. So to Christ did not glorify himself to be made a high priest, but he who said unto him, quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you, unquote. As he also says in another place, quote, 
You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, unquote. He, that is, the priest, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with, with strong outcries and tears unto him who was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all those who obey him, having been called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, about whom we have many things to say, things hard to be uttered, because you have become dull to hear. For when, by the time that you ought to be teachers, you again need somebody to teach you what are the first principles of the words of God, and you have become like such as need milk and not strong meat. For everyone who keeps on using milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby, but strong meat belongs to those who are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, that is, leaving the first principles, leaving the ABC of the doctrine of Christ, let us keep on going on unto perfection, not laying down again the foundation of repentance from dead works, nor of faith toward God, or the doctrine of baptisms, or the laying on of hands under the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify unto themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth, which keeps on drinking in the rain that often comes down upon it, and brings forth herbs, meat for them, for whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that earth which keeps on bearing thorns and briars gets rejected and is near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things about you and things that accompany salvation, even though we speak thus. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints, and do keep on ministering. Now, chapter 5, verse 1. A contrast is made between the Levitical priesthood and later the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. There are some similarities between these two priesthoods, uh, but there are also many differences. The similarities are stated in verse 1. Every high priest, be he a high priest according to Levi, or a different high priest according to Melchizedek, every high priest is taken from among men, so that Jesus Christ needed to be a man. It is not as God that Jesus Christ is a priest. It is as man that he is a priest. He has been taken from among men. 
and is ordained for men. The Levitical priests were ordained for the benefit of men. Uh, Melchizedek himself was ordained by God for the benefit of men, Abraham and the children of Abraham. The Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is ordained for men, not for himself, in the things that pertain to God. The priest is an, a mediator, an arbitrator, a go-between, between God and his people, both ways. He brings gifts such as bread and wine from God to the people. He takes the prayers of God's people and as mediator presents them on behalf of God's people to God himself. Um, he has been ordained by men in the things that pertain to God so that every high priest may keep on offering both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The Levitical priests did this. They brought to God not only the sacrifices, uh, the bloody sacrifices of God's people, but also the gifts that God's people gave the priests, such as the tithes. That's why we're told that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek of all that he had. Now, whether the high priest was a Levitical high priest or a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, verse 2 tells us the high priest was able to have compassion upon the ignorant. You see, the high priest knew more than did the ignorant people whom he was serving. Uh, but the high priest was not to look down on the people and despise them for their ignorance. He was rather to feel sorry for them that they hadn't had the opportunity to learn as much about God and how to approach God as had he, the high priest himself. And uh, this is the great thing of a true high priest. He has compassion on the people whom he serves and uh, whose service to God he mediates and brings to God. And certainly Jesus is that kind of priest. He is not ignorant, but he has compassion on us who are ignorant when we bring all of our needs, all of our tithes, and all of our sins to him. He doesn't get mad at us. He has compassion on us. His heart melts and he is pleased when we bring these things to him. And he also has compassion on those who are out of the way, on those who have gone astray. The great problem of the Jewish priests at the time when Jesus came to earth is they had no compassion, either towards the Jew that had gone astray and still less towards the Gentiles. But a true priest has compassion upon those who have left the straight and narrow. Folks, are you listening? Are you listening? Jesus did not come to save the straight-laced Pharisees of the Presbyterian Church of Australia or of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. He did not come for that purpose. He came to show compassion toward those who had gone out of the way, who had gone astray. And when we as church people begin to learn from Jesus and to have that same compassion toward the lost, who wouldn't darken the door of a church instead of locking up the doors and the windows of the church against these people, then we will see the church grow. Nay, more, then we will see ourselves begin to grow in the compassion that we should exude, which Jesus exuded, which we need to exude. And when we do exude it, nothing will stop the churches of the world from becoming full to overflowing. He has compassion on the ignorant, that's you and me, and also the non-church crowd outside the building. He has compassion on those who have gone astray, that's the covenanter who's broken his vow and he's gone off somewhere else. Christ looks up the lost sheep, not so much the saved sheep, but the lost sheep, in order to reach them indeed, he leaves the ninety-nine and he goes out after the one stray sheep, and he keeps on after that stray sheep 
that's living like a pig, that's behaving like a pig, that's rolling in the mud like a pig, but is still a sheep until he finds that sheep and brings the sheep back to the flock or brings the sheep outside of the flock into the flock. In that, he himself also is surrounded with infirmity. That was true of the Levitical priests. Time and time again, the people that surrounded them, on whose behalf they made intercession to God, uh, these people upset the priests uh, and surrounded the priest with infirmity. And who was more surrounded with infirmity and imperfections and sins and transgressions than our great Savior? Everywhere he went on this earth, every breath of air that he took must have been a stench in his nostrils because of coming into contact with people like you and me. But did he turn away from it? No. He resolutely went on as our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek until he gave his life for us, the sheep on the cross. And not only that, but he rose from the dead three days later and he ascended into heaven. And as man, as priest, he sat down on the throne of the universe so as to expand and extend his control over all of his creatures and all of his actions. I would nearly say now, but I won't because I'm in a church with a regulative uh, principle, stand up and give a round of applause for King Jesus. He is worth it. Uh, but you can show your applause in the way in which you sing the psalms from all of your heart when I get through expounding this wonderful passage. So, for this reason, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to make offerings for sins. Yes, the Levitical priests were themselves sinners. They were, first of all, to put their hands on a sacrificial sheep or a sacrificial goat to show that they were laying their sins on the sheep which pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And then, every household was to confess its sins in the household. The head of the household was to come to the elder over ten households and lay their hands on the elder over ten, and the elder over ten would lay his hands uh, on the elder over fifty, symbolizing that all of the sins of himself and all of his people right down to all of the households were laid upon the elder over fifty and he laid his hands on the elder over a hundred and he held, laid his hands on the elder over a thousand and the elders over thousands laid their hands uh, on the tribal leader of the twelve tribes and then the leader of each of the twelve tribes came and they laid their hands on the high priest who then on their behalf laid his hands not for his own sins which he had already done but for the sins of his people laid his hands on that sacrificial lamb and the lamb was slaughtered. But with Jesus it was not quite that way. For he, you see, was not a great high priest according to the order of Levi, where the priest was himself a sinner. No, no. He was a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he had no sins to lay upon a sacrificial lamb. Our Savior had no sins. Indeed, he was the sacrificial lamb upon whom all of the people in that chain reaction, uh, deposited their sins on the cross. And indeed, behind all of the people who so acted, it was God the Father who stirred up the people, causing them to bring their sins to Jesus. There is a hymn which hymn-singing uh, churches sing, I laid my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bore it all to save me, from that accursed load. Now the theology is not too bad except for that first word, I. I laid my sins on Jesus. 
There is a sense in which I do lay my sins on Jesus. But far better wording is, God laid my sins on Jesus. The spotless Lamb of God, He bore it all to save me from that accursed, lo- uh, that accursed load. And that is what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. God makes Christ, who never did a sin, a sin offering in our place so that we can become the righteousness of God through Christ. By reason of this, he ought, as for the people, to offer for sins. But now regarding the appointment of this great prophet, priest, and king, we're told in verse 4, both of the Levitical priests and of the priests according to the order of Melchizedek, no man takes this honor unto himself. But he who is called by God, as was Aaron, so too Christ, did not glorify himself to be made a high priest. But he who said to him, the triune God who said to him, quote, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Question, when did God say that to the man Christ Jesus? Well, we know that when our Savior was baptized, the heavens were opened, and the voice of God the Father was heard to boom forth. Uh, This one is my beloved Son. You had better listen to him. And the Holy Spirit descended down from the Father and alighted on the head of the Son of Man when he was baptized, not for himself, but for our sakes, in our place. Think of it with all that filthy Jordan water, polluted, as it were, symbolically by the washed-off sins of God's people, that pollution was laid upon Jesus at the time of his baptism, pointing forward, of course, to his crucifixion, which is why he said to his um, disciples, I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and how I wish it were accomplished. And also, can you people be baptized with the baptism with which I can be baptized. And they answered, we can. And the Lord conceded that point in part. For when we are baptized with our children, we share in the baptism which our Savior substitutionally underwent for the likes of us. What a rich meaning that is. That We need to see our baptism as bringing us into union with the baptism which Jesus underwent for the likes of people like you and me, that baptism which finds its focus in his Calvary work when he died for us on the cross. So then, Christ did not glorify himself to be made a high priest, but the triune God said to Christ, quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you. A quote, of course, from Psalm 2. But in Psalm 2, as explained in Acts 13 and other places in the New Testament, the meaning is not so much to God the Son having been the everlasting Son of God from all eternity, nor is the reference, strictly speaking, to the birthday of the man Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, but according to Acts 13 and other passages, uh, this statement, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is applied specifically to the resurrection of the man Christ Jesus from the dead at the time when all power in heaven and earth was given to him prior to his ascension into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of God the Father as he exercised his priesthood forever and his kingship forever according to the order of of Melchizedek. Indeed, right after verse 5, this is explained with reference to Psalm 110. As God says also in another place, quote, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then it goes on to explain how Jesus would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, O Father, I pray if it be possible, may this awful Um, this awful 
beaker, this awful cup of suffering pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And God the Father heard that prayer, not to get Jesus off the hook so that he should not die, but he heard the prayer in the sense of, Nevertheless, O Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And in this way, by the will of the Father being done, Christ was made perfect. He finished the course on earth. He lived the perfect life unto death. He was put to death by our sins being shoveled upon him. And in that way, verse 9, he became the author of everlasting salvation unto all those who obey him, having been called by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Oh, don't you see it? Our great Melchizedek, he came into the world for us. He officiates with God the Father on our behalf. He receives our tithes from everything we have from us. He dies in our place on the cross. He rises from the dead on our behalf. He ascends into heaven. And now he sits down on the right hand of God the Father Almighty to rule forever and forever and to seal the ongoing merit of his priesthood. His finished work is finished. His blood is shed once and for all. But his unfinished work also as a priest continues in heaven. For in heaven as a priest he keeps on praying for us every moment so that we should not fall but keep on serving him. This is the great high priest and the great prophet who keeps on speaking to us through Scripture and the great king who rules over our life according to the order of Melchizedek. And we have many other things, says the holy writer, to say about this Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek, but these things are hard to utter because you people have become dull to hear and to understand. And then he rebukes the people. He says, you know, by this time, you people ought to have become teachers. But that's not the case. Unfortunately, it's necessary to start all over again from the ABC and to teach you, many of whom have been Christians for decades, maybe 50 years, but you haven't learned much in 50 years, He's saying it's necessary to spoon-feed you like infants on the ABC of the gospel. This should not be. You should not need to be given gospel milk now that you've been a Christian for many years. You should have been weaned from milk. You should have moved on to strong meat, the strong meat of the word, the strong meat of admission to the communion table. I do not ask people to put up their hands, but if I were to ask you to put up your hands, uh, I would want to ask you how many of you have not yet been admitted to the Lord's table. There's usually one in every audience, let me tell you. And if there is someone here tonight who's been baptized as a baby, or you've never been baptized at all, but you're still on the, on the infant stage of Christianity, you're still drinking meat, uh, still drinking milk, it's about time you moved on to the meat uh, of the bread of life, which is food indeed. You need, to flesh, uh, you need to feast sacramentally on the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be admitted to the Lord's table, which, by the way, is a sign of maturity. The Lord's table is not for infants. The Lord's table is not for small children, even though many American Presbyterians are buying into that faster and faster and adopting the iniquitous views of the Greek Orthodox Church these days. Uh, the Lord's Supper uh, is a mature audience for mature Christians who have reached maturity, both intellectual and physical maturity. And that's what it says here. Everyone that keeps on using milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a baby, but strong meat belongs to those who are of full age, such as are of age, says the larger catechism. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How can a baby or a small child properly discern the sense in which Christ is present at his holy table. 
can't be done. That's why the Lord's Supper, unlike baptism, is not for babies and not for small children. It is for mature people who have discernment. And then he goes on to say, make sure that you move off from the first principles of Christianity, including the doctrine of baptism, for it is impossible, he says, for those who were once enlightened, 6 verse 4, and who have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away, it's impossible for them to renew once again unto repentance. Very, very solemn words. It doesn't mean that a Christian that falls into sin cannot get right with the Lord again, but it does mean it would be impossible for one who has professed a mature faith in Christ and who then removes from it, it would be impossible, it would seem, for such a person ever to be renewed again. But then notice that this does not apply to true Christians, for it says in verse 9, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things about you. So that solemn warning of being able to taste the good things of the kingdom to come, to taste but not to swallow them, may I say, and how many church people there are who taste and see the Lord is good, but they don't swallow and digest that the Lord is good. That's the category of person being spoken about. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things about you, things that accompany salvation, even though we speak thus. Nearly finished. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Don't you see? Now that we're in Christ, now that we really have been engrafted into the work of our great high priest and high king and high prophet, according to the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, we are to produce good works and labors of love. And when we do so, as we should, God is not unrighteous to forget our works and labors of love, which we have shown toward his name, in that we have ministered to the saints, we have helped other people because they are Christians, not because we like them. We, 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 we need to help people uh, uh, even if we don't like them just because they're Christians. You have done that and you keep on ministering to them. You love people for Christ's sake and not for the sake of the fact that they are nice people toward you and like you, even if they kick your teeth in and kick my teeth in, which they really shouldn't, of course, but even if they do, if they are Christians, we are to keep on ministering to them. That is the mark of a mature Christian. Well, I'm through preaching tonight, but let me close and just ask you, do you have this compassion towards sinners that the Lord Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, had towards sinners? If you are a child of God, you will, however slowly, nevertheless very surely, develop compassion towards miserable people whom you cannot like and don't want to like, but at least you can learn to love them. I don't like all Christians. I find many Christians very obnoxious people, but I force myself to love them, even though I don't like them. I force myself to love them for Christ's sake, because Christ <laughs> loves me, and I'm not a very likable person. I mean, let's face it far less likable in the eyes of God than you may think I'm likable. And that's for sure, for sure. We need to have that compassion towards sinners that Jesus Christ had. But above all, we need to see that he through his sufferings on the cross and indeed through his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his sitting down at the right hand of God the Father as high priest and high king and high prophet forever according to the order of Melchizedek, has been made perfect on our behalf and has become the author of everlasting salvation to all those who obey him. And part of our obedience to him is to move on from the first principles of Christianity, such as baptism, and not getting rebaptized, which is to re-crucify Christ, it says in Hebrews chapter uh, 6 and verses 4 to 6. We need to move on uh, to become people of mature years, 
people who are admitted to the Lord's table, are people who learn to develop skills of discernment, and above all, people who keep on ministering to other saints simply because they are saints, even if we might think that perhaps they ain't. May God burn his holy word into our hearts and exalt the great name of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who rules and keeps on ruling in the midst of his ignorant and ungrateful people. May we not stay ignorant, and may we become grateful on account of all that he has done and keeps on doing in heaven for you 